like to invite you to take your Bibles uh, and open them to Colossians chapter 2. We'll be reading from verses 8 to 23 this morning. You can find that if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you on page 834. 834. Colossians 2, 8 through 23. Let's stand as we hear God's voice. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the Raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations and with, that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Let's uh, be seated and go to the Lord in prayer. God, we have this uh, important and weighty passage before us this morning. And we want to hear the warnings that are there. We want to hear the words that are there and understand them well. Give us the ability to understand by your spirit. Not just understanding, Lord, but also the ability to take these things to heart. I pray that you take these truths and be sowing them deep into hearts and transforming lives by them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Most of you know that I moved here just uh, uh, just a few months ago now from Texas, where I lived for five years. Texas is the land of the used car salesman. We had uh, we had a town of about five thousand that we lived in, and no kidding, that town of five thousand had six different used car lots. So um, you learn you learn there's certain tricks that not not that the Lindale used car salesmen were were all that dishonest, but uh, you learn there's certain tricks that used carsmen can, can can employ, right? So you can uh, you know charge up the refrigerant and the and and make an air condition system that has an expensive problem look like it works. You can put real thick oil into the engine to hide certain ticks. You can uh, you know they have certain machines now that you can use to roll back the odometer. You know there's all sorts of tricks that can be used. And it's important if you're going to go buy a used car that you be aware of some of these tactics that can be used. Well, our passage that we just read is a little bit like the list I just gave you of certain tactics that can be used. You see, there were teachers going around in Colossae that looked like Christian, looked like legitimate teachers, but they had certain patterns, common practices that revealed they're dangerous. You should stay away from them. And so Paul goes, goes through and lists four different common practices of these Christian look-alike teachers so that pe- they can be avoided. But there's one big difference between the list I started out with and how Paul approaches this. Throughout, throughout the uh, passage, he keeps grabbing his listeners by the shoulders and saying, but you're driving a Bentley. What are you doing at a used car lot? I think you see what I mean. He keeps going over and over again to saying, look, you have Christ. Why are you even pandering around with all these different Christian pseudo-teachers, pseudo-Christian teachers? So as we go through our passage, we're going to look at four different marks or common practices of these Christian look-alike teachers. But with each one, we're going to hear the you're driving a Bentley refrain. Look at what you have in Christ. So let's look first at uh, verses... The first one we see is in... The first common practice we see is in verses 8 through 15. And that common practice is they design a logically coherent and intuitive system. Common practice. They design a logically coherent and intuitive system for their Christian teaching. Now what I love about Paul, this is great, he's, he's... dealing with these kind of false teachers, and we have 8 through 15, and only verse 8 describes the teachers. Then 9 through 15, he's like, all right, this is the you're driving a Bentley section. I'm focused on Christ. Look how great Christ is. Look what you have in him. But let's begin in verse 8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now the word philosophy refers to an organized and structured system of thought. It's a pretty generic word. But the idea is that what they're presenting is logically coherent. So these Christian look-alike teachers cloak something that's hollow and deceptive in such a way that it appears to make good sense. Right? It's philosophy, but it's hollow and empty. Hollow and deceptive philosophy. 
so we should be warned, that a cohesive system of thought doesn't necessarily mean that something is true. But then he also says that it depends on human tradition. So, one of the ways they prop up what they've come up with, this this human, this man-made system, is they make it seem more hollowed by tying it back to history. And then it says, and it depends on the basic principles of the world. Now that phrase, basic principles uh, of the world, can there's a lot of different interpretations about what that means. But I believe the phrase refers to the fundamental order and way of thinking of the non-Christian world. In other words, these teachers' ideas are very consistent with the basic assumptions and principles that rule our world. And that's exactly why it's so attractive, right? It's spiritual. It's logically consistent. And it isn't at odd with the assumptions of the world around us. So it's a compelling, intuitive version of Christianity that allows us to remain assimilated to the world while still achieving these spiritual heights. You can see why such a teaching would take people in and capture them. So, it emphasize, it, 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 uh, d- it, they design a, a logically coherent and intuitive system. But look what it says about him. See to it that no one takes you captive. There's a great Bible teacher uh, who's influenced me a lot named Dick Lucas, and he says of this word captive, takes you captive. This unusual word used here speaks of the slave raider carrying off his victim, body, and soul. The warning that Paul is giving us is a strong warning. This kind of teaching actually carries you away like a slave trader. But then, when he turns to focus on Christ, Instead of being taken captive, he talks about the freedoms that are ours in Christ. And so as I look at 9 through 15, we're going to see three different freedoms that Christ brings. We're going to see that Christ brings freedom from the power of sin. Christ brings freedom from the penalty of our sin. And Christ brings freedom from the evil forces that rule this world. So not captive by this hollow and deceptive philosophy that's based on human tradition and the basic principles of the world, but free in Christ. Now, verses 9 and 10 talk about uh, how Christ within Him is the fullness of deity in bodily form. Now, that verse is an exciting verse, and uh, maybe sometime I'll give a whole sermon on how, God, how Jesus was both fully God in bodily form and uh, fully God and then fully God in bodily form, so fully man. But I don't have time today to do that. But what I want us to see from 9 and 10 is the fullness of Almighty God 
is ours, is in us, when we have Christ. How wonderful, how great, how freeing. But then in verse 11, if, if you remember when we were reading this at the outset, maybe verse 11 is when your mind started to go, okay, now what is he talking about here? Circumcision, circumcision uh, made by human hands, circumcision by Christ, what's going on? So, as many of you know, back in the Old Testament, um, circumcision was the mark of God's people. It was, uh, it was the thing that kind of defined them and set them apart from all the other peoples. But when you think about it, it's kind of an odd, barbaric mark for people to have as their religious identity. When it was first given, it wasn't just given to little boys. It was given to all the men. It's barbaric. What's going on here? Well, it's interesting. In Deuteronomy, Moses is teaching on circumcision, and he actually says that what's most important, he used the term, the circumcision of the heart. So God allowed this outward sign to be kind of a, just that, a sign that pointed to a deeper circumcision that was needed. A circumcision that would cut and change our hearts. You see, as we've talked about, as we've been looking at Colossians, when Adam rebelled against God, something happened in our hearts. Something foul was unleashed. We can get into the arguments and logic of how all that works, but all you have to do is look into your own heart. And you know, there's, there's wickedness there. You don't want everyone to see what's really in your heart. It needs to be cut. It needs to be transformed. It needs to be changed. And so, what Paul is telling us here is that circumcision of the heart that Moses spoke of is actually accomplished in Christ that our very hearts, our very sinful natures can be transformed. Now, how does that come about? Obviously, it happens by Christ, but what is it that Christ did? And here's the basic fact of Christianity. This is the fact that the whole of Christianity stands or falls on, right? It's that a man, Jesus Christ, died and actually rose from the dead. Now, didn't rise from the dead like, you know, he was revived and then kept living and then eventually died again, but rose from the dead to never die again. That is the fact on which Christianity rises and falls. And I believe with all my heart that it's true, and I can go into great lengths about why I believe that, but if it is true, it means the very problem with this world, sin and death, has been conquered by someone. Ultimately and finally conquered, which also, according to the Scriptures, would testify to the fact that what Jesus did on the cross accomplished something in dealing with sin. So Jesus' death and resurrection is what enables there to be a power that can change our hearts, transform our hearts. 
And it's through faith in this Jesus, through saying, yes, I am following Him, I am embracing Him, I am taking Him as my King, through faith in this Jesus, that that circumcision of the heart happens. And how do we demonstrate that unity with Christ? We demonstrate that unity, that we've, we've embraced Christ and said, I am His, He is mine. What happened on the cross for Him happened for me. The way we demonstrate that is through baptism. That's what God commanded for us to do. Because it's, a, it's an active symbol of going down with Christ into the grave and then being raised with Him to walk in newness of life. That's the picture. In fact, from the Bible's perspective, from the New Testament's perspective, the idea of an unbaptized Christian is an oxymoron. That's the one thing that shows that we're united with Christ. But it's not what saves us, right? Baptism isn't the thing that saves us. It's our faith in Christ that saves us. But we demonstrate that unity through baptism. So I've been explaining it. Now let me just read verses 11 and 12 with that in mind so you can hear what I just explained and see that it's right there. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, like Abraham's, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So Christ frees us from this power of sin that rules our hearts. He deals with our sinful natures. But then in verses 13 and 14 we see something else, that he frees us from the penalty of sin. It says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. When it says written code there, all that refers to is a handwritten note. But most often that phrase was written to a handwritten note that was an IOU. So in the ancient world, if you owed somebody money, you did a handwritten note that says, yes, I will pay you such and such, right? And he says, look, all of us, because of the regulations that are there, laid out in Scripture about what God's standard is for us, all of us, every time we rebel against God and do something that's not pleasing to Him, it's like we write out with our own hand, I owe you. I owe you. I owe you. And the stack keeps getting higher and higher. And you know what? We can't pay. It's too much. None of us can. It stands against us, condemning us. But here it says, God took that IOU slip, all of them, and nailed them to the cross, saying Christ is paying the IOU for us. That's the marvelous truth here. There's an old reformer, kind of the first guy who started the Protestant Reformation. 
named Martin Luther. Martin Luther understood the idea of IOU. He was tormented by the fact that even though he was you know, growing up to be a priest and this great religious leader, that in his heart he was crooked and sinful. One night he's sleeping and he's having this dream and in the dream Satan comes to him and he's got, he takes out a sheet of paper and it, it, it has written on it some of, some of Luther's sins and, it's, and he says to Luther, Is this true? Did you write it? Luther hangs his head in shame. And then he takes out the next one. Is this true? Did you write it? Luther wilts a little more. On and on Satan goes until it's not just pages, but it's scroll after scroll. And Luther is in despair. Yes, I wrote it. I wrote it. Then in the dream, Luther sits up suddenly and says to Satan, It is true. Every word of it. But right across it, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cleanses us from all sin. That is what we're talking about here. That's what Paul's talking about. He freed us from this power of sin that's within us, but he took the penalty, the IOUs, and he nailed them to the cross. I want to pause this morning because I know there are people in here who when I talk about being freed from the power of sin or the penalty of our sins, you say, that's a disconnect for me. I still feel the weight of the IOUs. Maybe I don't always do, but when when I start to think about my own heart or when I'm in church and I hear certain things talked about that I shouldn't be living this way or whatever, I feel the weight of that. Or I know that I'm still enslaved to this uncircumcised heart of mine. Yeah, you might have been in church a long time. Your, your parents might be great Christians. Or, or you might be a good moral person in the community. But when you hear these things, you say, Paul is talking about, the Bible is talking about something that I don't know and that I haven't experienced. If that's the case, allow God's Spirit to speak to your heart this morning and embrace Jesus as your King. Put your faith in Him and say, yes, take my IOUs, take my sins of heart and put them off my cross and give me the victory that is mine in Christ. I've been praying for some in this room, I, not by name, I don't know who you are, I don't have someone in mind. You might feel like I do, maybe you feel like I'm talking right to you. I have no idea who you are, right? But I've been praying for people in this room this morning, and maybe you, even though I don't know it's you, that God would take these truths and sow them deep into your heart. And if that's the case, I'd really encourage you to come to me after the service or sometime during this week, grab a pastor or somebody you know who has a real hearty Christian faith and talk to them about these things because they're important. They're really where our hearts are changed and transformed. The good news of Jesus Christ. 
I said there's three freedoms, and the third freedom is there in verse 15. It says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He frees us from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, but he also frees us from the evil forces that rule this world. We don't need to fear Satan. He's been conquered. Some of the false religions that are out there, we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear Islam. We don't need to fear secular humanism. They can have their day in the sun, but Christ has already triumphed over them on the cross. And in Christ we have this freedom. 9 through 15, over and over again, this great, these great words about Jesus. And, and Paul is telling us, do you see? You're driving a Bentley. Why would you look to these other things that are based on man-made ideas? They're not rooted in Christ. They're not according to Christ. What's the second common practice then of these pseudo-Christian teachers, these Christian look-alike prophets? We see it in verses 16 and 17. And that is, they fixate on Old Testament rituals. They fixate on Old Testament rituals. It says, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. In the Old Testament, there are all sorts of uh, dietary laws. They were designed to make the people of Israel distinct from the other nations around them. So, what you eat and drink is a reference to these Old Testament laws. But when Christ comes, He unites all the different nations in Himself. And so, there's no need for these dietary things that separate Jew and Gentile to continue to exist now the defining mark of the, of the follower of God is going to be that he's in Christ and not these dietary laws. So the dietary laws actually point forward to Christ who will unite all things and be the distinguishing mark himself. Or if you look at the uh, different religious festivals that are mentioned, there's, there's the yearly religious festivals, there was the monthly new moon festivals, there was the weekly celebration of the Sabbath, which are all mentioned in the Old Testament. One of those yearly festivals was the Passover. That's when, you know, you've, you've, you know the story of when um, Israel was enslaved in Egypt and they were freed by God. Um, and one of the keys was this, well, the, really the linchpin of it all, was God took the lives of the firstborn in all of Egypt unless they had sacrificed a Passover lamb, a perfect lamb. And that blood sheltered them from the judgment of God. And they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And so every year the Jews would celebrate this Passover lamb and this Passover meal. But then, on the night before Jesus died, he sat at the Passover feast and said of the meal that was the Passover feast, which this is a picture of for us, he says, of this meal, this, is my body. This is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, the Passover was meant to point to one who would bring ultimate victory over God's judgment or protection from God's judgment and ultimate freedom from slavery and ultimate deliverance. 
Or take the Sabbaths, these weekly festivals that in the Old Testament were such a clear, you know, on the, on the last day of the week you are to abstain from work from sunup to sundown. Or from sundown to sun. It starts on Friday night, I know, right? Um, so you're supposed to abstain from all these things, right? But then the author of Hebrews tells us, look, those things were actually meant to point us forward to the true rest, which is found only in Christ. But these Christian look-alike teachers are not trying to focus us on Christ, they, but they want to prop up their arguments, make them seem stronger. So they're going to draw, they're going to fixate on these dis- different Old Testament teachings. But in verse 17 it says, these are a shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. When I get home from work, I don't walk in and give my wife's shadow a kiss. When I'm walking my kids to school, I don't try and find the shadow of their hand on the sidewalk and grab hold of that. And when I'm trying to grow as a Christian, I don't sit myself under teaching that fixates on the shadows. I study the Old Testament, but I study the Old Testament in a way that drives me to see Christ. Shows me how these sign points point to Christ. Not in a way that distracts us from Christ. So, common practice, they fixate on the Old Testament rituals. Now, let's see a third one. In verses 18 and 19, they emphasize ecstatic spiritual experiences. These Christian look like te- teachers emphasize ecstatic spiritual experiences. Look at verse 18. <clears throat> Do not let anyone who delights in false humid- humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So, um, they want to maintain a certain appearance of deep spiritual connection. So they, they have this humility that they, they exhibit, right? So um, they, they want people to see how humble they are. So maybe they don Spartan attire or they take vows of poverty or they go through these long fasts or maybe they make really long prayers, even seasons of prayer where they go away for a long time. I'm not saying any of those things are evil in of themselves, but what you see is these false teachers are going to take these, take these things so that they look humble and it looks like, oh, there's something really neat going on there. And then they're also going to intrigue you with the different connections they have to the spiritual realm. They're going to talk about an angelic an experience with an angel they had. And they're devoted to that angel. Or they're going to talk about um, some vision that they had. All this creates a feel, a feel around them that they are a deeply spiritual person. And so we feel inclined to them. But Paul says they're cut off from the head. Look at verse 19. He has lost connection 
with the head. That is Jesus. From whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. At the end of the day, with all these different things that puff them up, they're not rooted in Christ. And Christ is the one through whom God brings growth. Paul's like, hey, you have it. The body of Christ, you're all linked together. You have the head. You are growing in Christ. God's bringing that growth. So don't get sidetracked by these people who emphasize their ecstatic experience, spiritual experiences. And let's look at the last common practice in verses 20 through 23. They highlight an outer piety. So in verse 20, it's, uh, 21, it talks about how they talk about there's, there are these rules they have. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And then verse 22, it talks, or 23, it talks about they have an appearance of wisdom with self-imposed worship and false humility and harsh treatment of the body. Now, the Bible, uh, the Bible there, there's certain things from the Bible that we shouldn't partake in, right? It's good to worship. The Bible commends humility. So what's the problem with all these things? Some rules might be a good idea, right? But look at verse 23. The very last thing said. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, that flesh, that heart that we talked about, that sinful nature within us, going on inside, they don't have any power over. All of Christianity could be, or all of religions outside of Christianity, and even some versions of Christianity could be summarized this way. Striving to be good enough to win God's approval. Putting an outer cloak of righteousness and piety on to hide the mess that's inside. You know, if you know people, and you probably do, who follow other religions, you see them doing kind things. You see them showing certain piety. They seem really devoted and earnest. It doesn't matter what the religion is. It's all over the place. But the difference is when Christ changes us, It's not about strivings to please God. It says you've died with Christ to all those strivings in verse 20. So why do you keep keep submitting to that? Christ actually changes our hearts as we saw so that it's inside of us that's cleansed and forgiven and made new and that righteousness then works its way out as a fruit of the Spirit. As it, that's what the Bible talks about like a tree that bears certain fruit. It doesn't bear that fruit because someone came and, you know, in Alice in Wonderland, we're painting the, ap- we're painting the apples red, right? Try and hang these fruits on the tree to make it look like it has fruit. That's not the point. You can look like an apple tree, but if the apples are just hung on there, you've missed the point. What we need is that deep and profound heart change 
that can actually has power over our indulgent flesh. And that's what we have in Christ. But these people, these, these false teachers, be warned, it's common for them to do all sorts of things to emphasize their religiosity. Long lists of rules. Again, displays of humility. Their devotion and worship. Don't get caught up in all that. I love the logic there in verse 20. To use my opening illustration as, as an analogy. Since you're driving a Bentley, why as though you don't are you standing in all the used car lots? Since you died with Christ, the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it do you submit to its rules? We have before us today, at the end of the service, this communion table. It's a chance for us who are in Christ to celebrate all that Christ has done for us. And that's Paul's overarching emphasis. Even in this warning section, it's his overarching emphasis. Look what we have in Christ. Instead of being captive by man-made religion... We can be free from the power of sin. We can be free from the penalty of sin. We can be free from the evil forces that rule the world. Instead of, instead of having to grasp at the shadows and look for the shadows and just focus on Old Testament ritual, we can have the reality to which these pointed to. Instead of having to... Uh, you know, all, the, all this emphasis on ecstatic spiritual experiences that come with man-made religion and, and you know, all, of, all that comes with that. Don't go after those things. Go after Christ, the head through whom God grows us. Instead of being drawn to this kind of outward piety, this cloak of piety that one can put on, be drawn to the Christ who transforms your heart and changes you from the inside out. That's what we have in Christ. But be warned. Do not be taken captive. Do not let anyone judge you. Do not be disqualified from the prize. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? It's a strong warning Paul gives us. One that we need to hear. If there are teachers that exhibit those marks, again, even though they look Christian and call themselves Christian and pull from tradition and the Old Testament and outward forms of piety, they're not ultimately rooted in Christ and helping you feast on Him. Tune them out. Get their books off your shelf. Turn off that radio station. Stop listening to that podcast. Paul's warning is serious. And his alternative is glorious. And that's what we'll celebrate in a moment. Let's pray. God, I do pray thanking you
for what we have in Christ. All these riches, the one who in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Good news indeed. He is ours and all that he brings. So I pray that we as a church would remain devoted to Christ and not get sidetracked by all these other things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.